On the podcast today, we have one of the most terrifying yet inspiring set of stories that I have ever heard. This is the story of Tim Miller. Now, Tim Miller has been climbing since he was a child, and recently he won one of the most prestigious awards you can win for climbing and mountaineering. Imagine it like the Oscars for climbing. In this podcast, Tim talks us through some of the highlights of his careers. For example, summiting the previously unsummited mountain that he then named, which is just wild to me. But then he also talks us through some of the horrors, some of the nightmares. For example, getting buried alive in Pakistan. My name is Harrison Brown. And before you watch this episode of the Into Mind podcast, please do me a massive favor, hit that subscribe button, hit that five-star button. I'd really appreciate it. Enjoy. I was about 15 and that's mm. from like Rosie who came to our school who like um, took us climbing outside and like taught yeah. us all the rope work for um, doing that and at the same time also joined like a, a training like a youth training team mm-hmm. uh, in Glasgow we would do like competitions and that was like really good for building up a base level of strength before so when I went outside you kind of already got like the sort of like physical ability and then um, and then went to uni and just met other friends and had a friend who had a car and like just uh, went off and had silly adventures and kind of learned yeah. along the way and all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah i got lots of good good memories of uh, my friend like climbing with a bike helmet on yeah. my friend finley who's like a year above me in school he had a car and i had like some climbing gear and we would go out together and i would like drag him up stuff we didn't have a guidebook <laughs> and we just like get totally soaked he didn't have like waterproofs and yeah. all that kind of stuff so it was, was more just for the fun of it yeah just like proper adventure and like having a bit of a laugh and and uh, yeah. not getting loads done but learning lots yeah yeah i remember you in school i remember there being the the girls chatting about you because you you had your top off somewhere and you were chiseled man because you'd, you'd just start climbing properly and it actually like reminds me I, i've started climbing uh, just at the climbing gym, just like nothing big, just bouldering oh, and cool, yeah. autobile. But you work muscles that you just never thought you had. It's great because it, it doesn't feel like a workout. No. You're just like having a bit of fun and it's very like bouldering is very sociable. You just go along and you spend like five minutes chatting, then like five mm. minutes climbing and then, and you're just kind of like working through a problem that's like a bit of problem solving mm. and uh, and you end up having a workout, but you don't really realize. So it's good for that bouldering yeah. in particular. It's, le- it's less boring. Like I yeah. feel like when I go to do weights now at the gym, I kind of I get bored really easy. Yeah. Whereas if Andy and I go climb, we're there for like an hour and it's like yeah, that. You, you can go for two hours or whatever and, and it goes by pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. It's good for that. And what yeah. kind of, because I'm on, you get like orange, purple, orange, blue. I'm on blues and greens at the Is moment. Is this in TCA? Yeah. 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 What are you on? I, I, I. I've done a whole bunch of the hardest ones, like the white ones, or whatever. You do the white, but but um, but like that's just like the the kind of scales indoors. But then like outdoors, yeah. there's like much harder ones and and like a whole bunch of different grade systems and stuff. Mm. Um, so like yeah, they get bouldering gets two different grades, like an American system and a French mm. system. What's the easiest? Um, it would be like so the French one's called font, and that's like maybe font one or font two is like pretty easy, but that's kind of like like really easy like yeah. walking up a slab sort of thing mm. and then like um yeah and then up to like font seven c's like hardest i've like bouldered which is the equivalent of like some of the hardest white ones indoors yeah but then there's like so much harder than that like on some of the hardest boulders in the world like up mm. to like font 9a 
which is uh, I, I couldn't do a single move of that at all. That's like, really? Yeah, that's like much, much harder. And do you think that when you're out bouldering in, in the wild, so to speak, that it's a lot harder than indoors? Or do you think that it's quite like similar? The, the transition that I'm struggling with, Andy and I have been talking about mm. this, um, we're actually going to go to you hopefully for it. Oh, cool. But we want to get in, more into the bouldering like outdoors yeah. and, and do more. The, the climbing gym's good, but it's not doing it for us anymore. Yeah, do, yeah, does that yeah, make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah. So is it harder to transition outdoors from indoors? Yeah, I think it is because, uh, like, you know, when you're indoors, you're on big purple blobs. It's easy to know where you're going. Yeah. And it's like quite intuitive and like, um, whereas when you go outdoors, you have to like, you just got holes in the wall and there's a bit more problem solving and you have to kind of read the rock, mm. which is a skill that takes quite a long time. And often like indoors, they can make fun problems that are still easy. So you can have an overhang, but with big holes on it, but that doesn't really form outdoors naturally. Yeah, it's not natural. So, so the easier routes are normally like really slabby, but still with quite small holes on it. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think bouldering in particular is, takes a bit of time to get into when you go, f go outdoors. Whereas um, I think also for me, like, what I really love about climbing is also like the exposure and the kind of element of risk and like the position in the mountains and stuff. Mm. And I really like going like trad climbing in the mountains where you're like placing your own gear and you're on like a big multi-pitch route. Mm. So you've got like some space around you. And even then it can be easier technically. Mm. It can be like as easy as a purple indoors, but um, with all these other elements around it, like the kind of position and the, and the scale the of it. yeah 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 so so when you're when you're outdoors on these boulders they're like kind of like purples going yeah. up but it's the sheer drop and the scale of it that is what you like yeah so well so climbing's got so many different categories of types of climbing so you've got bouldering like just actual boulders outdoors where it's only up to like maybe like seven meters high or something you kind mm. of either climb off or you can jump off and stuff and then um and then you get sport climbing, which is the equivalent of like indoor climbing where you have bolts, but that's in outdoors. So there's bolts in the rock, so it's super safe. You're just going to mm. fall into a big metal bolt. Um, and then you have trad climbing, which is where you're placing your own gear. Mm. And so instead of having a bolt, you're like putting a bit of metal into the rock, into cracks and stuff. And then that catches you if you fall. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's adding an element of risk because depends how well or how many opportunities there are to place bits of gear in the rock because you'll have further to fall if you don't place yeah, it. yeah if you don't if you don't place any then you're not attached in but if you like there might only be so many cracks you can place gear into and that yeah. kind of thing and then you get multi-pitch climbing and a pitch is basically a rope length so if if your rope's 60 meters and the route is 100 meters you'd have to do, like, do it in two pitches okay um and so you would do a, a rope length of climbing build an anchor bring your mate up to to that rope uh, to that point and then do another one again yeah um, and then th then you're kind of like that's what you do in the mountains a bit more adventurous and there uh, you get more exposure around you you're higher up and and then you have things like you know in yosemite like el cap where those some of those um big cliffs would be like 30 pitches so that's like 30 rope lengths and that'll be like multi-day kind of stuff yeah, yeah. And do you yeah. think the it's the adrenaline aspect? Because like did you graduate from the indoor stuff to the outdoor stuff? Is it because of that adrenaline aspect, uh, do you think? I don't think it's necessarily just adrenaline. Uh, and I don't I don't think I'm motivated that much by adrenaline because uh, it's maybe like a stereotype, you know, like seeking adrenaline mm. and doing all that kind of stuff. But uh for me it's also like where you are and the aesthetics of it. Because mm. uh like being like if you just look at two pictures of an indoor climbing setting and being on a big wall somewhere like sitting on a ledge it's like so uh, aesthetic like uh, mm. you just kind of 
it looks like a place you just want to be mm. like uh, it looks intriguing and um and that I always knew when I climbed indoors that I wanted to be in the mountains and doing outdoor sort of stuff because it just feels more real mm. and um and and I like the risk aspect because it's an extra thing to deal with but not because it just adds adrenaline I think also uh, um you have to be quite smart with how you kind of manage it you can't mm. like if you just go into it not thinking you can get yourself in really bad situations and so there's a lot of tactics to like how you place gear and what gear you take and especially a big multi-day route there's a uh, you're quite weight conscious because uh you can carry a lot of stuff if you end up taking too much and uh so yeah and there's, like all the rope work involved there's a lot to know as well so that all just mm. I think I think it's really nice doing a sport where it's not purely the physical aspect. There's but you just uh, use your intelligence. Yeah, as well. there's tactics and uh, mm. and technical aspect and and all that kind of stuff and psychological as well. I think I did learn that especially when I first started climbing in, in just the, the indoor gym. I was kind of just just go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the more you learn, the more you're like, no, there's certain moves you have to do at certain points to balance mm. your body. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of technique to climbing, like. Um, mm like a lot of it actually and so you can be really strong and not do so well because your technique's bad mm. um, and then with the psychological aspect as well like not always the best climber can do well if they aren't able to like switch their head off and like um, get into the zone of like okay there's no gear here so either I don't do the route or I have to like um sort of turn my brain off and just like climb it without thinking and that you're gonna and, fall yeah and uh, try and get through this section till i get to the next bit of gear yeah. and that because as soon as you have um an element of risk then sometimes your technique goes to pot and mm. and you like cling on too tight and and you get all jittery and stuff so being able to control that is like a really interesting part of it it's like the anxiety of of knowing that it could potentially be an issue yeah, like if yeah. you fell you you could hurt yourself yeah um, and do you find that you've ever done that? Have you ever been like halfway up a, a route and then you've looked down and thought, oh my God. That happens most times. Ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like uh, so often, especially with winter climbing, like we always joke, like you you wake up at four in the morning, you have to drive for like two hours to get to a cliff. You walk in um, into the mountains for about two hours through the snow, through a blizzard or something. You get to the mm -hmm. cliff and then uh, you were climbing all day and you just think, why have I done this to myself? <laughs> and uh, here I am halfway up, like the last mm. bit of gear is way beneath my feet. If I fall off, I'm going to hurt myself. Mm. And I've chosen to be here. And you get through it and you get to the top and then you're delighted because uh, you've overcome this challenge. And then mm. as you're walking out, you're thinking, great, when can I do this again? Yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> and like uh, you just end up in this silly circle of like going around these like, yeah. and that's what it's, that's a big part of it is kind of overcoming that mental challenge and it's like really satisfying. Mm. Especially yeah. the 4 a.m. bit. Like I remember when I first got into photography and video, I would get up at, I don't know, 3 a.m. to climb a Monroe in Glencoe or something like that just to get the yeah. perfect shot. And halfway up at the Monroe, you're like, this is horrendous. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, why yeah. have I done this? Yeah. But then when you're up And then it, it becomes all worth it. Yeah, yeah, and it becomes all worth it as you see that sun peeking over the Monroe yeah, yeah. and you're just like, and do you do a lot of it? Is it sunrise stuff? Is it always in the morning? Um, no, it, it can vary a lot depending on the weather and stuff like, um, like, and it depends on the type of climbing as well. So mm. like a big winter route or like alpine climbing and things are a bit longer, you need a full day. So you just get up really early. So you've got the full daylight basically. Mm. In the Alps as well, like when the weather gets like quite hot in the afternoon, you get things like 
avalanches or rock fall or like mm. ice melting and stuff so you kind of want to be done before that happens so sometimes you get up early and finish early um but then in summer if you're just like out for a short kind of afternoon climb if the weather's rubbish in the morning you might you can just get up whenever and yeah. go and do that. Have you ever experienced yeah. any kind of avalanches or rock falls or anything like that? Yeah, like that stuff is relatively common that like you, you see it. Mm. Um, yeah, I've been in about two avalanches. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, you see rock fall quite a lot, especially in the Alps, because it's um, the last few years have been really warm. Mm. And uh, so... When it when it warms up, especially in like July and August, like all the mountains are held together by permafrost. Yeah. Um. So they're kind of glued together with ice, and they're not they don't normally get as hot as they have been. And then when they get super hot, all that ice melts, and then rocks just start falling out. And so I've seen like some really big like car sized boulders like trundling down hills and stuff. It's it's pretty impressive to watch, but also pretty scary. That's terrifying. Yeah, it's massive. Yeah. That's so. That, so if you were on a route that you were climbing up and that came down, I'm guessing you're just yeah. There's nothing you can do with that. But yeah, you can you can climb in areas that like because not all rocks the same. So certain like gullies might um, like have um, rock fall funnel down them. Mm, so whereas mm -hmm. if you're on a ridge, there's generally less above you. Whereas if you're in a gully, things might come down, and, and areas will be known for having worse rock that they are more likely to have more rock fall down them and stuff like that. And so but can... does that make it more of a challenge? Like, does that make it more of, I feel like the more risky it is, you look at K2, mm -hmm. I feel like the more risky it is, the more climbers are like, well, if I do it, nobody else yeah, has. I think a little bit, but I think generally there's like risks that are worth taking, ones that aren't. Mm. And if you can climb a mountain or just even a route that's not going to have rock fall on it, versus one that is almost definitely going to have rock fall on it that would be a bit of a silly risk to just take on yeah but um but then there are like there's obviously a lot of like claims that uh, do have a bigger reputation because they are known for more risk but uh you have to like think pretty carefully about why you're taking it on and if it's worth it for you because uh i don't i don't think just taking on any risk for the sake of it is worth it smart yeah yeah and you said you've been caught in two avalanches yeah. on top of you um one was uh, in 2018 in Pakistan mm. and that was a really serious one because um, we were trying a new route on the peak uh, which had been claimed before but this this route would have been a new route mm. and um, we had been claiming for a couple of days and then the weather got really bad and we had to make a camp and so we were camped on the shoulder of the mountain and it snowed for about two or three days and on the third day a small avalanche came down but we had dug our tent into this platform mm. and so it completely buried our tent and all three of us who were in the tent got uh, completely crushed under there it felt like plastic bags being compressed around your face and I was at one end of the tent and the other two guys at the opposite end and uh, so like I just had like an air pocket about the size of like 30 centimeters in front of my face oh my God. and uh I just kind of ripped the tent and managed to squirm up to the surface. We were about like a meter and a half under the snow. And I kind of got out to the top and looked to my side and expected to see them emerging from the snow as well. Mm. But they weren't. And so I went over to where they were roughly and dug down and eventually found both of them. But one of them had actually just died. And the other, oh one, the other one, Bruce, I managed to get him out and we were then both stood there but we'd just been in our in our like leggings and our t-shirt and socks and stuff uh. and so then we were now st like standing in this snowstorm 
like wearing nothing basically and so we then spent the next like five or six hours digging out the rest of the tent and all the kit and you'd find like a glove and you'd put that on and you'd find like another boot and stuff mm -hmm. and then you'd find a jacket and then eventually we re-erected the tent a bit further down somewhere a bit safer um, but there's a big hole in the tent where I'd climbed out and the poles were snapped and stuff. And so you, you like rip your way out of the tent? Yeah, I actually like bit it with my teeth and went like that to rip it and, uh, and then oh had to God. like squirm up, which it's like hard to know how long that all took, but it must have been, you don't have long, so maybe like 10 minutes or something. And then like another five or 10 minutes to dig down to the other guys. Um, Fuck, damn, I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's horrendous. Yeah, that was like pretty full on, but that was like five or six years ago now and I've told the story enough times I've like, just becomes like a story now mm. um and so yeah we we put a tent up again and that evening we just spent the whole night uh like melting snow and then making it into hot water bottles in our mm. in our water bottles and then um kind of eating food and stuff and we kind of had our satellite text device and we told our uh, our mate in base camp what had happened and they kind of organized the rescue and so the next day we woke up we didn't actually need a rescue because me and bruce were like fine by that point but there was no way we could have gotten christian down mm. um and there, there would have been quite a big element of like potentially getting avalanched as we descended anyway so the next day was rubbish weather but we flattened off this platform where like a helicopter could come and land mm. and the following day after that the weather was good and a helicopter could come in and the first one landed and we put christian on and bruce got on that one as well mm. and that headed off and then half a layer, half an hour later came back and i got on with all the rucksacks and stuff yeah um Yes, that was like super full on. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, and and was the snow like cement around you? Because I've, I've, I've yeah. heard it explained like that. Yeah, it's it's because it comes down uh, and it's all moving and then it just kind of stops. And because it's all been sort of like shaking around, it then suddenly like sort of sets. And so it's much mm. harder to dig through. It's not like digging through powder or anything. Um, so when I was digging down to get to them, I just had like bare hands and it was like really uh, like like all kind of compacted snow so it mm. did take quite a long time they're more um, icy than the, the it's not, snowy. not more icy but just like if you make snow into a snowball mm. and it's kind of like compacted rather than just being light and fluffy jesus yeah. christ jeez and that didn't put you off at all uh it definitely made me rethink what i was doing and all that kind of stuff and mm. the biggest effect is with uh like my my mum and dad and my girlfriend and stuff mm. and because i've done two trips since then like expedition similar sort of trips and uh, they're obviously pretty worried while I'm away. And so I've got to do, to do a lot to like... Um, Precautions. Yeah, like make sure they know what's happening and have like a safety person in place so that if something happens, they're kind of being the, the person between like kind of organising the rescue and and make sure they're like uh, reassured as much as possible. Mm. Yeah. And what was the, the kind of aftermath of that? Was it just kind of, yeah. you went back down to Pakistan and then flew back? Or? Yeah, then we had like a week, which was pretty nuts, where we had to like make some pretty hard phone calls to Christian's family. Mm. And then also we had all our stuff left at base camp, like passports and stuff. So we had to walk like two days back to base camp and get that stuff and, and bring it back. And then lots of phone calls with like, the embassy like because he was american and uh so checked the american embassy and then the british embassy and then insurance companies and mm. and then uh, and then news agencies started calling up oh my god and uh it was pretty nuts um it's the last thing you want is to speak to a new news agency yeah. um yeah and then it'd yeah. been another small avalanche in scotland which is like 
like was pretty insignificant really just like because mm. they, they vary a lot in size and the, that one was just like kind of slid in it for about 50 meters and then stopped that's not too bad then comparatively yeah, to the last yeah, one like it was like pretty shallow it's maybe like 10 centimeters you just you just slide but had like even then if you slide and you go over a cliff then that's pretty bad yeah um, which which mountain that was on ben nevis oh i was on nevis yeah, yeah. is that your favorite uh there's a lot of good mountains in scotland not sure i've got a favorite but like it's a really good one there's a lot of good rock climbing and winter climbing and i've been climbing there for years so it's got like a special place for sure yeah but also like benny up in torridon's really mm. really good and i love the cooling as well in sky coolings are stunning yeah. we, we were there drew and i were there the other day uh, we said to you filming just mm. the, the actual this firstly the scale of it but also just the the shape of it mm. is just beautiful like mm. so beautiful and even when you're at that bridge of the bottom of the coolings mm. uh, it's right beside yeah, the main pr road pretty iconic isn't it amazing yeah amazing and did you camp i, I know that we bumped into people that uh, that knew you in abothi but did you camp in a kind of the cliff face when you went up there or how do yeah, you yeah I, I work on sky a lot that's actually um i mostly go there for work i've done mm. a lot of my own personal climbing and stuff there but um quite often i'll guide a traverse so where you like uh go along the full ridge and that'll be over two days mm. and so with clients so like uh, you'll have like maybe nine hours or something doing the, the southern half like mm. uh, you do about five or six minerals or something and then you'll just bivy out so you won't have a tent or anything mm. and there's quite a few spots where it's like flattened off gravel and you kind of put your camp mat down and then you'll be in your sleeping bag eating your dinner watching the sunset and stuff and there's, mm. there's a few little caves if the weather's bad but it's pretty nice just being out in the open yeah yeah so that's yeah. always really special doing that as well do you think part of the attraction and I, i'm speaking purely from personal experience here when you're in like normal life, there's so much noise, whether that's like paying bills or taking your girlfriend yeah, out to yeah. dinner or like socializing with friends. Whereas when you're in the mountains, there's like, it's like a switch gets flicked off and you're, there's like peace. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that's part of it? Yeah, I think um, it's nice to have a single focus, which is like looking after yourself and getting to the top of something or mm. claiming or just surviving. Mm. Like it makes life a lot simpler than answering emails and yeah. phone calls and social media and social media and stuff like that yeah, yeah. I, I really like that um just seems a lot kind of easier to manage and probably a bit more natural like we're probably not built to sit on our phones all day whereas mm. we are built to just try and like manage the weather and get through the day aren't we that's probably yeah. what like people did like thousands of years ago yeah well i suppose we're, we're built and drew and i were discussing this beforehand we're kind of built in a way that we need to keep moving forward and excelling and pushing the limits mm. and you see this with like and i want to ask your opinion on this gentleman the likes of nims doing the 14 peaks without mm -hmm. or well, he did a hybrid between oxygen uh, but he did that in what six seven months yeah like seven months or something yeah but like why do you know what i mean it's amazing mm. but also you think what an achievement but why yeah yeah why do you think it is that people want to just keep... yeah i guess we just like challenges don't we that's what humans have always liked like oh can we get to the moon or can we mm. build this or that um yeah i don't know i think exploring has always been like a big thing mm. and uh well i just really like exploring for myself like seeing what's around the corner just seeing what the world has because mm. you're only here for like a blink of an eye mm. and it's just nice to see like what there is to experience on earth before we go um that's that's what I like about exploring, but yeah. obviously then there's the whole argument of like doing things to like keep keep developments going and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, essentially, claiming is pretty pointless, isn't it? 
like you're just going <laughs> up a mountain but it's good for it's good for yourself but doesn't really help anyone yeah i, I was watching a, a video on youtube a, a documentary with you in it actually and you were climbing let me get this right the Jugal Spire, mm -hmm. and you named that, didn't you? Or did you name it, or was yeah. it the first time anyone's ever climbed uh, it? Yeah, no one had been up that before. And yeah. Um, yeah, so we did the first ascent of that peak. Yeah. And so it didn't have a name. It just had like a uh, like a number, like 6563. That's how high it was. I need to pause this podcast really quickly to bring to you a quick word from our sponsor. Chisholm Hunter are the sponsors of the Into the Mind podcast. And without Chisholm Hunter, we would not be sitting here today. Chisholm Hunter specialise in luxury watches and luxury jewellery, and they're world-renowned for their luxury diamond range. If you want to buy a luxury watch or diamond, head to chismhunter.co.uk. That's chismhunter.co.uk. And on that note, back to the podcast. Mm. Um, and we asked some locals if it had a name, and they didn't really know what it was called because it kind of lies just in front of a much bigger mountain so it doesn't really stick up in the skyline or anything mm. and so there's not really any reason why locals would have named it because it doesn't kind of stick out mm. um and so the the area was called the jugal himal those mountains around there so we okay. just called it jugal spire and then the route which we climbed up it we gave that a name as well so we called that the phantom line that's quite so that's, good that's the name of the route because um we called it that because uh, when we were looking through it with binoculars before we went up, we could kind of see bits of a line, but we weren't entirely sure if it, if there was a, a possible route the whole way to the top and it would kind of like kind of come and go depending what angle we looked at it from. So we called it Phantom Line. So, so that's how you, so, so that's mm. incredible. So you sat at the bottom of this mountain looking at it with binoculars and then you plotted your route based on what you saw yeah so even before we got there there's like a lot of research that goes into it and so paul has like done an amazing job that's the guy who i went with yeah and so um he's a lot older and he spent his whole life like scanning google earth <laughs> and researching like uh like claiming journals that get released which will have like most expedition trips that have been to different areas and mm. um and what's been claimed and you also have a good network of mates who who know what expeditions have happened. And uh, so with all that research, he worked out that this peak hadn't been claimed. And we also found out a team had been to the area the year before. And so we asked them if they had any photos and he happened to have a photo with it in the background. Mm. And we could then see at that point there's like a worthwhile face that was, that'd be good to claim. Um, because you don't know, like on Google Earth, it's a pretty grainy image and it could be yeah. just like a big steep lump, but the rock quality could be rubbish or mm. there might not be an obvious line up it. But anyway, we saw there was a really good looking face and we went and then uh, once we got there, the first week you're just acclimatizing and also doing a bit of a recce. Mm. So we climbed a much easier like snow slope just to get some height and spend time at altitude. Um, and uh, while we we're doing that, we we're looking through binoculars at the face, like trying to plot a potential line through it. Yeah. And um, on that route, it's like a big steep granite face. So like, it's like vertical rock all over it, yeah. which would be like desperate to try and claim but going across it diagonally is this like fault line where uh, there was like ice on a ramp and like there were points where the ice would disappear and there was a few sections where we couldn't really tell if it would just be blank rock or if there'd be something there to climb up and then we started up the route still not really knowing mm. and so that's it's like a huge um it's, it's a big difference between doing like a new route versus like claiming already claimed route mm. because there's just so many unknowns and so it wasn't the kind of blank section or the kind of set the unknown section we didn't get to that till about day three or something and it turned out there was like a 
a sort of big crack chimney feature that we could climb up. We had to leave, leave rucksacks at the bottom. Mm. Then I would like square up this crack for like a couple of pitches and we'd haul rucksacks up afterwards and stuff. So, so that's two rocks that are sitting right beside yeah, each other. Yeah, so, so chimney would be like, there's all these climbing bits of terminology, but uh, yeah. like a chimney is like a really wide crack that you can kind of get half into. It's so like yeah. sort of, um, yeah, 40 centimetres or... Or, wi- or wider, oh, and uh, and you're like kind of putting an elbow and a shoulder and a knee in and like sort of shuffling up and yeah. and it's a lot of squirming, um. So that was the crux of the route was getting up this chimney and then after that we're on to like more ice and ramps and stuff, mm. um. But the the whole the whole climb from base camp to base camp was about eight days, so about two days to get to the bottom of the route, then five days on the face and then another day or two to get back to base camp again that's long yeah it's a long time how do you pack for something like that because yeah i'm I'm guessing you well you need food obviously you need gas canisters yeah you need you need clothes yeah how do you or do you well you don't shower for like seven or eight days i'm guessing you don't you don't shower for a month there's no there's no showers in base camp you you just like base camp's not like what you imagine base camp is like at Everest or something. This is like a peak that no one's climbed before. So you just go and put your tent in the flattest bit of ground, and and you're the only ones there, and you don't see anyone for a month. Um, and so 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 base camp. So, we, so for that trip, we went from Kathmandu, and got a bus ride for like seven hours or something to the end mm. of the road. Then we walked for about four days. Um, to to the edge of this glacier basically found a flat bit of grass put our tents there and then we were there for about three weeks the first week was acclimatizing and Mm. sussing out the route that i just mentioned and then um and then the kind of second two weeks you've got try and find like a weather window to do the route Mm. and so for packing you've got um uh like a lot of heavy climbing kits so like we took two two 60 meter ropes Mm. um all the gear so that's like uh, all the metal work so like cams nuts pitons and quick draws and stuff um, you got helmets harnesses boots but you're kind of the hardest bit is actually well not the hardest bit the heaviest bit is getting to the bottom of the route because that's when all your stuff's in your bag then once you start climbing the ropes are out and the gear is out and you've got it on your harness and so on but you've got like all the overnight kits so tent sleeping bag mat stove um, and then yeah the food is always a big one because you can if you took the amount of food you would want to eat, you would just have such a heavy bag. Yeah, so, so you need to like ration. Yeah, it's like it's like really cut down. Yeah. So you know those freeze dried food packets. Yeah. Oh uh, God. So yeah. So so uh, there's only there's one company that I found actually that I actually look forward to eating. And another funny side effect with altitude is I also completely lose my appetite. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's quite common. And it's weird because you know you've done this massive day and you need to eat some food, but you just can't stomach it. It feels like when you're unwell and you just don't want to eat anything, mm. which is quite a weird feeling. But um, so this this uh, company called Real Turmit is like is amazing. So I t- definitely recommend them. Um. So that's what you're having at. At dinner time and that's like yeah like 700 calories or something and mm. in the morning you have like a similar sort of packet of like porridge or granola or something that's also like dry and you just add water to it yeah and then during the day uh you just have a few bars and so like protein bars like trek yeah, bars protein bars and mars bars something with lots of calories in it yeah yeah, yeah. But, um, you can eat what you want i'm guessing say again you can eat what you want yeah 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 you just eat what you want you need to get some, as much as you can into you and then but like so I was kind of going off what Paul recommended and he 
he he often goes off like one bar a day mm. so you just have like this porridge thing in the morning freeze-dried meal at night time and then one mars bar and uh and that is like not enough compared to the amount of calories you're actually spending yeah and so you inevitably lose a lot of weight even if you had like the second trip i did it ate quite a bit more like i mean i took three or four bars a day but then you're still maybe you're having like a thousand calories in total and you're probably burning like four or five thousand and uh, and then with water you try and drink a lot in the morning and then don't tend to carry that much during the day because uh, again it's heavy and so you'll drink a lot in the morning and then drink a lot in the evening mm-hmm. and all your water is like melted snow and ice so it's quite a long process you have to like sit there with the stove and the gas isn't um doesn't get as hot because uh, you're at altitude mm-hmm. so the water boils a bit lower uh, and the gas takes ages because because uh, it's cold you have to keep your hands around it to keep it warm um and then you melt the snow boil it put it in your mug and then you drink that and then you do the same again so all so the, the whole the whole eight days from when you leave base camp is actually just constant um looking after yourself yeah and, yeah, yeah, yeah and just keeping on moving so uh we both have like separate roles even in the tent where like paul's melting snow and i'm like uh trying to sort other things out and you're kind of working together mm. um but yeah you like Every trip I've done that's like that, I've come back about six kilos lighter or something. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I'm guessing the amount of snow that you actually burn or like turn into water, like comparison to the amount of yeah, water it you, creates. Yeah, you've got to go through a lot of snow. It's just pretty time consuming. Yeah. 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 And what was the most dodgy bit of that? Yeah, we, we had uh, quite a funny, not funny, but like interesting experience on like yeah. day or the night of day two where we had... So again, to camp, there's nowhere that's flat to camp on mm. the face. You're just on like a vertical face. And so um, if you get to ice fields, like a snow field, you can chip a bit of a ledge into the ice, but it's really hard. So you can only make like a, a foot deep ledge. Mm. Um, but Paul has this kind of homemade invention of a, a snow hammock where it's like a bit of tarp that's uh, in the shape of a hammock, which you attach to the side of the ice. And whatever you dig out of the ledge you're filling into this hammock. And so if you dig a a foot and a half deep ledge, you're filling this hammock up with snow and that'll be a foot and a half deep. So you end up with a three foot ledge, which you can then just about put a tent on. It still overhangs off the side. So this tent is like, like uh, got the corners, like just hanging in space. And the whole time you stay, you've got your harness on and you you stay tied in for the full five days and you're clipped into an anchor. Right, Um, so if you fall off the cliff, you're clipped in. you're, You're still clipped in, but also like, so I always got the short straw. So Paul was doing the cooking and I had to sleep on the outside. Oh. Uh, so like your bum and your feet and your head are all hanging off in space. You just like, uh, you have to like fill the gaps of the tent with your rucksack and your boots. So, so you, but even then it's just, it's, it's not comfortable. And so, uh, so, but did you, did you, and you never get scared of that. The fact that you're, you're, you're essentially sleeping on, on a cliff. <laughs> yeah. Well, well you are actually tied in. So it's one of those situations where, it is scary, but it's relatively safe. Yeah. But And also, I think after a while, you just become so knackered, you stop caring about small fears mm. like that. And there's like bigger things to worry about, like actually being hit by some rock fall or something, which would kill you. Yeah, and yeah. so the fact that you might fall off and just be a bit like, oh, yeah, that, that's yeah. like not something worth worrying about. You don't have the energy for that. Mm. But anyway, on on the second night, we um, so we had pitched our tent in on one of these ledges. And we were actually in this 
a bit of a mistake in a bit of a runnel. So any sort of snowfall kind of filtered down this runnel mm. and it snowed a bit during that evening while we were having dinner and the snow started like uh, sort of spin drifting onto the tent, which oh is kind of like, it's not an avalanche, but it's more just like um, large amounts of snow dumping on you, kind of get filtered down this little uh, little gully. Yeah. And, uh, and it was basically just like building up between our tent and the ice and it was like pushing us off. So we had to get out of the tent and just stand on the ledge and had to keep digging the tent out. And so we did that for maybe like four hours in the pitch black and then we just realised it was a bit pointless. So we just like pull the tent into the ice and just mm. let it let the snow pile up on the ledge and just bury the tent and so me and paul just stood there with the head torches off mm. while we were getting spin drifted on for several hours just like waist deep in the snow <laughs> and you're just kind of thinking what a surreal situation this is to be like halfway up this unclimbed mountain mm. in the dark somewhere in the middle of nepal uh, just getting pummeled by spin drift yeah and then eventually it started to subside and we got back into the tent, but it had been a bit damaged and we just kind of sat in the tent. And so rather than we couldn't really lie down because a lot of snow had got in and uh, it was all a bit crumpled, but we just kind of sat there um, and like shivered till the morning. And oh then the next God. day we just carried on. And so that was pretty grim because you're then a bit cold and damp and you've no got sleep. no sleep at all. And so the next day we just started moving really slowly and we found like the next ledge we found, we basically stopped there and we just had another... Another night there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds. It sound the, the thing about these kind of adventures are they, they like they sound amazing, but also shit at the same time. Yeah, you, you have to really enjoy all the weird shit bits, which yeah. does most people wouldn't really enjoy that. And it and it sounds and I, I wouldn't really enjoy it on paper, but when you're there, you kind of there is something pretty strange about it. That's kind of like, well, this is pretty cool. Yeah, I think I think the thing about shared experiences especially when they're shit you can talk about them you can laugh about them mm. like and that's kind of a beautiful thing like let's say i went traveling for a while and i went to hostels i stayed, yeah. stayed in hostels some of these hostels are shit right there was like there's hostels where cockroaches are literally on you mm -hmm. but they were the funny bits because you're yeah, in it that, together that makes a story otherwise it all goes too yeah. smoothly and there's no there's no story to it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's a lot of the adventure side of thing is uh, firstly you achieve something which is amazing but yeah. also you exp you go through that shit with someone and you build something with someone yeah definitely i think that's like yeah they're, they're essential for an adventure because an adventure is not an adventure without like something going wrong and yeah and having to like make something up as you go along and all that kind yeah. of stuff yeah and what's your opinion on because there's the, the adventure side of things like you've done creating new routes or doing stuff that's never been done before but then there's also the the kind of tourism element Mm. base camp everest everest for an example mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that kind of stuff yeah i've not really got into that world at all mm. and if i'm doing a personal climbing trip like for myself i would always try and look for something a bit further away from from that mm -hmm. so like if i'm going to nepal it would be for like new routes or something that's been unclimbed or a bit esoteric or out the way or whatever um but also like through guiding and my work and stuff i would I would do that kind of work if it came up, like uh, working on Everest and, and stuff like that. Um, and, do, and are you fine with the tourism? I, again, it's not ones. something I would necessarily like. Yeah. But it, it, it's a whole new side, which would be kind of interesting to see. But I don't imagine I would like it compared to like, like being by yourself and mm. kind of enjoying it all. Because like in the mountains, people are a huge problem. Like uh, 
it just influences your decision making what other teams are doing they can knock stuff down top of your head it just like uh, it adds a lot of unknown and unpredictable risk to the to the day actually the, like you get mm. cues and stuff like that on Everest and it's just there uh, and also it's not so like nice if like there's like human shit and stuff all over like ledges and stuff and yeah. and like a lot of rubbish left behind and and like bits of old tatty rope lying all over the mountain and stuff yeah it's not super nice mm. but um yeah i think have you ever seen the movie everest yeah, I think I did see that quite a while ago, yeah. Just from what you were saying about people influencing others, what a horrendous story mm. about, you know, a teacher that shouldn't really have been allowed to go to the top by his guide. Because mm. if they had left at that point, they probably would have lived. But because of that personal connection and friendship that they have, they mm. make the wrong decision and all of a sudden weather comes in and all hell breaks loose. Like that is, you're right. I think the the, the personal connection and also like, other people can mm. be an issue yeah because because especially when you're guiding clients have their own aspirations and stuff mm. and like my job is to try and manage that and try and achieve those aspirations while keeping it safe and that's like a really delicate balance because you get tied into uh wanting to try and help the person achieve what they want to achieve mm. but also you need to keep things safe and it's like managing those two two things basically but but if someone's really pushy that really heavily influences your decision making and it Makes, makes it harder. It, it makes it a lot harder, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes like the militant decisions of no, this is what we're doing are better mm. than okay, fine, we'll we'll do it. Because mm -hmm. I mean the gentleman that, that was the guide on that expedition, he knew what he was doing he shouldn't have been doing. Like he he knew the mm. risks, but he did it anyway because of that personal connection. Mm. And I feel like that's uh, just such a danger when it comes to climbing because it is such a solitary sport. Mm. I mean, when you see people in the climbing gym. A lot of them have got their headphones on, they're, they're looking at mm. roots, they're kind of doing it themselves, mm. kind of maybe how it should be. Mm. Um, but like generally, you, like when you're roped up, you're always in a team. Mm. And so I think, it, yeah, you are, you are, you pretty much always are claiming with other people. But they're but, experienced. But then, but then also, yeah, so even like when, when you're with your mates and stuff, it's so important to have a partner who's like on the same wavelength as you. Yeah. And um, I think the more kind of, adventurous the trip is or like the kind of more serious it is mm. the, the more that matters having like a partner who's like i think a few things so like having the same sort of attitude to risk and in terms of when you turn around how safe you want to make it because there's all sort of different ways of um climbing and what rope techniques you use some are safer than others and so on and also um like having a similar sense of humor as well and just yeah. getting on together um because you're there for like a month or something with someone mm -hmm. and you've got to get on well and you've got to have just be on the same page with a lot of different things otherwise tensions are going to arise because because when your life's on the line you you're going to like have your own opinion yeah you've got to make sure that it's pretty similar to the person you're with yeah you need to have that ultimate trust yeah, yeah. i suppose that's where it gets tricky is where people instead of having the ultimate trust they start paying and i think that's kind of what everest has got into it's people with perhaps not as much experience that have been that have paid a lot of money to be there so the guide then feels obligated to get them to the top even though they might not be capable of getting back down mm. and that's maybe where the issues arise because it's people that are they don't necessarily climb a lot but just want the achievement and they have the mm. money to go to mm. everest yeah that's certainly the stereotype isn't it but um, yeah but uh 
yeah, it's just that's the guy's job is to try and work that out, manage and, that, and know where they are and and how fit they are and if they're going to get back down and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and they should yeah. they should be gauging that kind yeah. of. Yeah, have you ever thought of doing any of these big mountains out in uh, Nepal or, or like K two or any of that kind of stuff? Not not as like a personal trip. No, because they're pretty expensive. Like uh, like the trips that I've done um, so far, if it's a new route and unclaimed peaks, you can get big grants for them. Mm which cover a lot of the cost and then also the the permit is like pretty cheap really because no one's going to go there anyway so it's like yeah. it's like 200 quid or something whereas all these big 8000 meter peaks are like thousands of pounds for a permit but uh so i wouldn't do them personally but definitely like i was saying if if i was gonna if someone offered me to work on them i would i would do that yeah you do it yeah you do it. and have you ever heard of uh i was talking to john bathgate John Bathgate regarding this, uh, who's the who's the Marine that got mm. shot twice in the Amazon yeah, Rainforest. Yeah. Did a podcast with him. But there's a thing called, uh, I, I believe it's called Climber's High. And essentially what happens is you'll go up to these peaks and you'll acclimatize to the altitude. Yeah. What happens when you acclimatize to the altitude is your body produces more red blood cells mm -hmm. and that carries oxygen around your body more. Yeah. But when you come back down, yeah. you feel amazing because you've still got all these yeah, red blood cells. Yeah. Did you ever feel that? Because you were up um, at 6,000 meters. And then yeah, I've been up to 7,000 meters before. But uh, but the thing with these kind of trips is, like I was saying, you're not eating enough. Mm. You're just doing these massive days and you come back six kilos later. And so you just come back completely knackered. And uh, <laughs> like, like, yeah, you're more climatized, but you're just so like you lost a lot of muscle mass and mm. you just like you're not i don't you're not like you've been lying on a icy ledge for the last like week yeah. you just want a bed uh, you, you need a bed you need some proper food and stuff like that but um maybe if you did get altitude like and you don't need that much to have an effect so maybe if you slept at like four thousand meters in a like a hotel mm. and got well fed then you could see some sort of um uh, sports benefit if mm. you went back to sea level again but like certainly not the trips I've done. I've always come back just Knackered. feeling completely dead. Yeah. yeah, and it takes quite a long time to recover from like um, getting your weight back up. And I've had like minor frostbite injuries and stuff like that. And that will take. You had frostbite. Like just um, little bits and the end of my toes went black, but like just like bits of skin flake off, and it's fine after like a few months. It's not like super bad or anything. How did but, that feel? Like getting. Oh, well, I'm guessing you were freezing, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. how did that feel when you got frostbite? I didn't even know you'd had that. Yeah, but um, it's on like a big scale. It's not like super mm. bad or anything, but like I just had like black tips on my toes. Um, but it's kind of like they get a bit blistered and stuff and, yeah. uh, and then the skin flakes off uh, and it's kind of fine after maybe a month or two. Mm. Um, but... Uh, yeah, you just can't feel your feet all day, and you have to really keep on top of it. Like my, mm. like hands are okay because you can kind of get a bit more feedback off your hands, and you can always put your gloves, like you know, put your hands in the fist within the gloves, and kind of like feel the rest of your fingers and try and warm them up. Mm -hmm. But you can't really do so much to warm your toes up when they're in boots and stuff. And um, yeah, in the evenings I would try and take my boots off and like assess how they're getting on and stuff. But then yeah. you've got multiple days and they aren't drying out each time and stuff. Yeah, then it's a bit hard to manage. But you think yeah. it's just because they're damp and then... Yeah, your, your feet are just a bit damp and then you're cold and then doesn't really dry out and you're just climbing for like a week straight yeah. and stuff. And the tops of the tips that went black? Yeah, the skin just went a bit black and then peeled off. But it, it 
it wasn't too bad really yeah you, you were fine mm-hmm. You've, all the toes are remaining yeah yeah they're all yeah. totally fine they're all still there like it's not a problem now i guess it would just be a bit more susceptible to that kind of thing if it happens again mm. which is annoying why uh, because i think it just damages the kind of blood flow to that area and so you maybe don't get as as much thereafter or something yeah because it's vasal oh, this is fifth year biology it's, it's vasal restriction isn't it so you're 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 it contracts to <clears throat> keep all the blood yeah. in the center of your body right yeah so what's happened is your your blood vessels have contracted and then on reopening they can't get back to that area yeah is that kind of how it, i'm actually not totally sure but something yeah. like that you you just you all your body's like uh, keeping all the blood in the mm. core just to keep that warm um yeah that sounds yeah brutal though and that's the only kind of frostbite you've had in terms of injury you've never had any other big injuries or you've been okay uh, i did have like a ski injury years ago where i snapped my acl oh no but uh, and that's quite a long one to recover from is like yeah got surgery on it and then um use a graft from your hamstring and then uh, it's maybe like six to nine months mm. did a lot of physio for it and stuff so it's actually pretty much fine now mm. but uh that is quite a long one to recover from but that's yeah. Like that's the only injury I've had, and that was from skiing. So I never actually had a proper climbing injury. That's good. But um, I do know people who have lost like digits from frostbite. But uh, like Paul, who was climbing with actually on the last trip, he just like got the very end of his pinky finger in his left hand had to get taken off because um, we had a really cold summit day, and I think you just like you warm your hands up and they feel kind of cold and numb, but you you're just not getting enough feedback, I guess, and you just mm. uh, let it get a bit too cold. And it went kind of white, and then a week later it went black, and then you had to get, like, just above the last knuckle yeah. um, taken off. Uh, but, um, yeah, he's learning to, to, to get used to it again. Yeah. And is that, does that affect his climbing now? Um, yeah, it will do, probably. It'll affect rock climbing, and then winter climbing with an ice axe in your hand hopefully it's like not enough to make a difference if you're mm. still holding on to an ice axe but um yeah i think he's just a bit annoyed because he, he's done like 30 years of expeditions never had a, an, an injury like that and then well, it might be going, age as well yeah yeah I, I don't know if that plays a part potentially mm. yeah because i think age must i mean muscle deterioration you've got things going on with age uh, so potentially your blood flow is affected by that. Mm. Um, oh, but that's a shame. But he, but he was fine though. It was just the tip of his finger. And yeah, it's and okay. it's left hand as well. So it's like if you're going to yeah. lose one, it's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. You won't want the right hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, you didn't take oxygen up when you did the six thousand, six point yeah. five thousand um, Yeah. So like on the peaks we've done. So again, they're like they're pretty technical, and so it's a really different style to doing stuff like Everest. Mm. Because on Everest, you're like, a lot of it's fairly easy climbing. You've got big space for camps and they'll set fixed ropes down the mountain. So once those ropes are in place, you can, you're can you pretty safe. You're just clipped in the whole time and you're jugging up and down the ropes and you can move kit around the mountain. So they'll have a big team of Sherpas and, and the climbers and stuff as well. We'll move oxygen bottles around. But on our route, it's, we, did, we did it in a style called Alpine style, mm. which is where you kind of start at the bottom You've never done the mountain before and you just go straight to the top and back down again. And so you don't have time to like shuttle things around the mountain and it's too hard to do that anyway. You couldn't, mm. you couldn't repeat the the, the pitches. Mm. And so, um, so yeah, and it's, I mean, it's six and a half thousand meters. So people wouldn't normally use oxygen for that sort of level anyway. Mm. Um, but uh, you, you got much less kit overall than what 
I guess you have less kit overall than what you would have on an 8,000 metre peak, but mm-hmm. you carry more in your rucksack because all your ropes and your rack are all on you rather than like pre-placed on the mountain. Yeah, yeah. And you didn't, I remember when I was in, uh, I was in Bolivia in the salt flats when I was quite young. Again, I was like probably just after that ski holiday mm-hmm. I met you on. Uh, and I do remember being at quite high, high altitude. I can't remember what the altitude is. It was high altitude though. And the, the lack of breath. Mm. This is something I've never experienced before. Yeah, it's, it's pretty unique, actually. Like, it's completely exhausting. Exhausting. Mm. Um, and then you've got all these other factors, like you're starving hungry and you're doing these mm. big days of climbing and you're carrying a big rucksack. But the altitude is like, it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like, it's it's kind of surprising how, how big effect it has. It's absolutely huge. Mm. And uh, you'll be sitting in the tent, like, cooking, like, panting for breath, sort of like you're doing something totally mundane and you'll be like <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like everything you're doing is like that and then um you get a splitting headache as well i get headaches yeah, quite a lot yeah and uh, you don't really get much sleep because you've got like a migraine um and how long is the acclimatization time to those altitudes or i suppose you can't because you're going up so it's like different every day um well so up to we, we tend to try and acclimatize to within a thousand meters of the summit we're trying to climb mm. and so on like six and a half thousand meter peak we went up to about um we actually went up to just below six on on that trip uh and you, so when you get to the end of the road we got the bus and that took us up to about two thousand meters mm. and then we walked in for four days and that whole time you're starting to acclimatize so the walk-in uh, we maybe went up by about 500 meters a day or something mm. and then we had base camp at about 4,000 meters and then when we acclimatized that was eight days and again uh, as you get a bit higher you kind of want to make the increments a little bit smaller so ideally for acclimatization you're on like really easy terrain where there's no risks and uh, you can just go up by about three or four hundred meters a day mm. um, until you reach the higher the better but up to a thousand meters um below the summit level and then once you're actually climbing you're ideally acclimatized for most of the height of the route you're going to do mm. but then the top bit you'll still continue acclimatizing as you go but you're doing because it's technical climbing you're going a bit for a bit less far each day than what you would do on a an easier bigger peak mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so you're again maybe claiming like three or four hundred meters a day while you're on the face um yeah, so it's quite a slow process. It's just about spending like a certain volume of time at, at altitude. Mm. Um, and the climatization is like easy terrain, but you're just like suffering. It's just like headache. You, you're only maybe climbing for like two or three hours a day. And then the rest of the time is reading a book with a headache in a tent, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and you, I saw you, that. You'll be lying there for like, uh, like 16, 17 hours, just lying and reading with a headache. And mm. then you do the same again the next day. And do you find that relaxing? I I, I realize I, when I was watching that documentary on uh, YouTube, I did realize you had a ton of books with you. Uh, yeah. Do, do you so you don't go on your phone at all? You just try. Well, there's, and... there's no there's nothing to do on your phone. You don't you got no signal, and uh, <laughs> and so yeah, we take like on that trip we took three books each, mm. and like at base camp we had quite a bit of time where the weather was rubbish, and so again you, you'll have like a full day of just sitting reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not a fast reader or anything, but I'll go through a book in a full day because you just spend like the whole day reading. Yeah, you got 17 hours reading, <laughs> so um, so just get it's a, it's a good time for getting into books actually. And again, like yeah. what you're saying earlier, just forget about the rest of the world. Like yeah. life becomes so simple and easy. You're just eating, thinking about packing your bag, or like going climbing at some point and reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
and it's it's really relaxing actually yeah. i think people uh, in general like humans are quite we, we shouldn't have as much stimulus as we're having mm. like if you think of caveman hunter gatherers we're quite low stimulus yeah. things like people yeah uh, and there was a stat the other day that was like if a guy was to see a girl playing piano at a bar about 100 years ago 200 years ago it would release the same amount of dopamine a line of cocaine would release well but nowadays because we've got tiktok instagram yeah you see like that kind of stuff on social media all the time yeah yeah so we're not interested and people are like their 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 dopamine uh, sort of switches or levers are being hijacked by these mm. systems that that release it synthetically and it's not mm -hmm. real but i suppose what you're doing is you're stripping everything back and getting back to the yeah that's what's super nice about it is um mm. we're not designed for that for that amount of like emails and conversation well not conversation but it's like d demand like kind of demand for our time basically mm -hmm. and so having a single focus of getting up a mountain and surviving is like pretty refreshing yeah yeah i was gonna ask you have you ever seen sherpa the documentary i've not seen that no oh man this is i want to get your your kind of opinion on it but it's, it's quite terrifying it's uh about how the the people going up everest or these really high peaks in nepal that the mainstream mm. ones are treating the sherpas mm. and how much they're paid and how it's their only real way of generating income mm -hmm. despite the risks uh now i can't remember the year but people should watch this documentary if they're listening but the sherpas are going up the really dangerous bit the ice fields of yeah. everest really dangerous and it collapses and there's yeah. a huge huge thing i think i believe don't quote me but i believe it was like 16 of them died mm. and there's a video of an american guy at the bottom saying to his tour guide we'll just make them take us up you know treating him like a dog it was yeah. horrendous um I, I, and you see the sherpas walking up with all their shit like all their rucksacks all their stuff I, my my opinion is it's quite wrong mm. but i want to know what your take on it is well, yeah i mean that's all definitely sounds wrong yeah but uh yeah i that, that's the nice thing with all all the claiming i do you're not you're not in that world it's like a pretty different world really mm. and like, even most of the clients i spend time with aren't like that like um when you were climbing in scotland or in the alps with with people they, they they've all they're like us they mm. they uh they're respectable and and they, they do a lot of stuff in the mountains already and they know how that sort of stuff works. I think the 8,000 meter peaks does attract like a different sort of client maybe, mm. but uh, not to say that they're all like that or anything, but, um, but yeah, that kind of thing is definitely not It's like an ego. Good. Yeah. But um, I'm sure there's still lovely people that do that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty important to make sure you don't take that kind of stuff for granted because you're obviously pulling a big shift to yeah. do all that stuff oh for sure i yeah. think but that that's again i think this is where money gets in the way of things mm. you know people have paid you know upwards of ten thousand pounds twenty thousand pounds to be there and to do let's say everest is the mainstream one so when somebody tells them no mm. all of a sudden you've got a conflict of interest there mm. and it causes that corrosive yeah i think i think it's important with clients to like work their way up um kind of uh peaks and stuff before they try the next big thing mm. so like having a pyramid of uh of like experience so they've done lots of the easy stuff mm. quite a bit of the medium stuff and then a little bit of the hard stuff before they go on to like the next step up yeah and that way they just kind of know how the mountains work like like and also as a guide you kind of get to form a relationship with them and they know mm. 
how you work. So when you say, oh, we're turning around here, they, they respect that. Yeah. And, uh, and most of them already respect that already because they've done a lot of, like, even if they come to me with like wanting to do some sort of climbing, they've probably done loads of hill walking themselves mm. and lots of easier climbing. And they just need a hand with the next kind of, kind step. of tricky, yeah, the next step, the next tricky grade or whatever. Um, and so they are climbers themselves and they understand that. Mm. Whereas if you do get a client who's like paid for a one-off thing to try something, they're not really outdoorsy people at all, mm. then that's when you're going to get that. They don't know how the mountains work and they don't know uh, like that you don't you can't always get to the top or you all that kind of stuff is there yeah. is there any kind of like unspoken rules that you know of mountain climbing that perhaps people that haven't done it before don't know uh there's lots of little bits of etiquette and that kind of stuff mm. and i guess it is uh, quite a lot to get your head around um they're all pretty small things i guess really but uh some of the things i can think of are like with going winter climbing there's like kind of ethics Mm. Uh, and like in the UK we've got a big thing about placing bolts or not mm. placing bolts and so when you put a bolt into the rock it kind of defaces the rock and so there's some areas where that's acceptable where it's like a crag that's been specifically set aside for uh, for sport climbing putting mm. bolts in and some crags where you have to put your own gear into because uh, putting a bolt will completely change the route and, and it uh, alters the rock uh, and then again, for winter climbing, no bolts are ever used in Scotland in the mountains. Mm. Um, you get a few down low, but then for winter climbing as well, there's like a thing of uh, it needs to look wintry. So you can't just get your axes and crampons and go and like climb something that's like just, just bare rock. Mm -hmm. It needs to be, if you do sometimes climb rocky routes, but they need to be like kind of covered in snow and have a wintry look to them. Mm -hmm. uh, like... Um, so that's called like winter conditions and people can get a little bit worked up if you're climbing things, if it's like too warm and, and you're often climbing on frozen turf and if mm. the turf is all mushy and you can pull turf out and it damages the turf as well and stuff like that. Ah, because it would damage it for the next people. Yeah, then. you can pull it all out and then it's no longer there and then you can't climb it. Yeah. Um, and and some of the turf is like r rare bits of heather and lichen and all that mm. kind of stuff. But um so, so things need to be cold and, and white for when you're going winter climbing in Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's sometimes the thing that gets, uh, can be a bit hard for people to get their head around. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I guess climbing in general does have sort of a ethos of like being like not too showy offy about things. Mm. And um, that can often be like something that rubs people up the wrong way if you get certain characters who are like, quite big and bold about what they've done and stuff oh, and nims was one of them wasn't he yeah yeah he's quite yeah. um quite bold about it yeah 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 and people didn't uh they hadn't seen his seen his track record previous yeah because he hadn't maybe done those middle steps mm -hmm. so they they were uh, uh they were unsure about him starting yeah it's just not a very claimery sort of way of going about it because mm. normally people are like quite quiet and understated and stuff that's what and i like about it though yeah, that's what I really like about it. I think, and mm. that's quite strong in Scotland as well in particular, like uh, the kind of climbing community in Scotland is like, not many people kind of like boast about what they've done at all. Yeah. Um, and that's a nice thing. But uh, Nims is a bit different, but he's obviously really good and mm. super good at what he does. But uh, it just kind of catches people off guard a bit when it's yeah. like, well, that's not what you normally do. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But that, that's kind of, I think his body chemistry as well after watching that documentary. Mm. 
is like fucking wild. Like mm. he, he was on that treadmill and they were measuring, they were restricting the oxygen and yeah, measuring yeah. His, how his brain works yeah. under lack of oxygen. And where normal people <clears throat> would start essentially freaking out, mm. he was fine. Yeah. Because essentially he's been born at that higher altitude. Mm. So he has more of those red blood cells. Yeah, it probably does play an effect. Yeah, mm. I think um, like normally if we come from sea level, we have to acclimatize each time. And he also have to acclimatize, but maybe he's like just kind of set at a slightly higher altitude than what our, like our baseline would be sea level, but maybe his baseline is like 2000 meters or something. Yeah, so maybe. when he goes a bit further, he's okay. Yeah, potentially. That is interesting. I think one thing that you said, and I can't remember the words for it when I was watching his documentary, uh, what is it when you start hallucinating because you've got lax of oxygen to the brain, they call it, is it cos or something like that? Oh, I don't actually know what the name for it is, but yeah, you can, Yeah. You, like it just, you just basically go into complete exhaustion. Mm. Uh, and when we were coming off our peak, so I did another trip with Paul last November just there, mm. and we were coming off and we were completely knackered of like starving hungry and, and the altitude and stuff as well. And we were just like stumbling all over the place and mm. uh, just moving super slowly. It, yeah, it completely affects everything you're doing. Yeah. Part, part of it's the, oxygen but i think also just um overall exhaustion as well yeah 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 i see see people like it's, it's really it's really terrifying i mean that they're because of the lack of oxygen to the brain they think they're really warm mm. and they'll start stripping off clothes. oh yeah i think that can happen if you're like getting part of lack of lack of oxygen but also just like when you get hypothermic yeah one of the symptoms is like uh, sort of not realizing you're cold anymore and feeling mm. like you're actually quite hot and you end up taking things off and obviously that's not going to help. Aye. But uh, yeah, I, again, I think just like if you are going to do these big trips, that's why it's helpful to have this pyramid because you've already experienced like, like I think being in Scotland is a great training ground for it because mm. like the pathway that I took was going indoor climbing, then going outdoor climbing in summer, then winter climbing, then going to the Alps and then you kind of go on to go to expeditions. So when something like that happens on an expedition you've already been out in blizzards in scotland and it's like oh yeah i know how to look after myself because that's essentially like what it all comes down to is not really the claiming or the fitness necessarily but just your sort of self-management mm. of um knowing how many layers you need when to change your layers like how much you need to eat and like listen to your body and that kind of thing so you don't end up in a totally starved state or something yeah yeah, yeah. and what what, have you ever got to the top or near the top of a mountain with a client and you've had to be like, listen, no, we, we need to call it. We need to turn back. Uh, definitely there's been days when you have to call it and stuff. Not necessarily like, maybe there's been some when I've been like near the top, but often you kind of pitch it in a way the client come around to the realisation themselves because you like you're painting a picture or like you, they, they can see the situation that you're kind of going into. Mm. So it might be like, okay, you, the accommodation might have would be like we've been going for five hours this is how far we've got we've still got this amount to go we're not going to get there in time but if we if we do this alternative route we're going to be a bit quicker and mm. you, and you can suggest alternatives and stuff like that that's like a good way of like managing clients expectations that's quite a big part of it as well and also like um like picking things that they are realistically going to achieve because like then it feels like a success even if it's not plan a whereas mm. if you try plan a and don't do it then it feels like a failure mm. so if you if you achieve it plan b that feels like you've achieved something rather than failing on plan a yeah if that makes yeah, sense yeah um, you've never had any kickback um 
Not like not really. So again, like most clients I've had, I was saying are all mountain people and understand how that works, and so they they're always um, totally happy to go along with what I've said. Mm. There, there's been like maybe one or two times when people have been disappointed, but more not because of like my judgment, but because of their realization of it's obviously upsetting when you can't do what you want to do yeah. when you spend a bit of money, or also maybe just like. Um, if you uh, sort of hoped you were going to be able to achieve something which you can't, you kind of feel a bit annoyed at yourself. Hmm. Uh, so I've had people a bit like that. But, um, yeah, a lot of people understand how that all works. And it's like, it's not as big a worry as you'd think. Yeah, like, yeah. M- most clients kind of get it. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's dangerous, isn't it? And they kind of understand that you're just steering them away from... Mm-hmm. Dangerous. Yeah, so that's what they're hiring you for. They know that they, they're, mm. they're getting you to keep them safe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what would you say are the top five things to bring climbing with you on one of these expeditions? Um, for expeditions, um, like your kind of basic climbing kits, so harness, helmet, crampons, there's a lot more than five. Mm. But um, uh, then you've got overnight stuff like tents and stoves one one big luxury though that is really good is having a book and something that's also changed the game with that is having a kindle mm. um so i didn't used to have one until uh, this year but then because on previous trips you, you, if you if i take three books and paul takes three books you go through them pretty quick and they're heavier as well yeah and they're pretty heavy and i used to always like in the alps i would always carry a big chunky book up to a hut and stuff and then you got that to read but having a kindle super small and light and you got loads of books so that's that's been a game changer for me. And the battery life didn't. Yeah, the battery on the Kindle lasts for ages. Mm. And uh, I'll take a little solar panel with me on an expedition so you can charge it up, mm. and a little battery pack. But um, yeah, Kindle's a big one for for bigger trips and so on. Yeah. What do, do you read other climbers' expedition stories? Is that I, what you read? I I actually watch very little and read very little climbing content because. Mm. My friends are all climbers. I do it for a hobby and I do it for work. And I don't want to get back home and then read climbing books. Yeah. So I actually quite like reading other stuff, like completely other different stuff. Mm. Um, but uh, and I, have, I have read a lot of climb books in my time, but trying not to, because otherwise my life becomes just one thing. Yeah, one. Yeah, the same, well, that's kind of yeah. what happened to me as well. It was like a hobby. Now it's a job. And then all my friends that I associate with also do it. <laughs> it just yeah. becomes like your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's good to keep your life varied. I think, like, do different things. I like going to music gigs and mm. seeing friends and uh, and like, because Beth's not a climber, so she gets me doing a lot of other stuff. Like going, we go cycling and go mm. wild swimming and go for runs and stuff like that. So that's it's good. Yeah, it's amazing what wild swimming does to your body like the shock response that it mm. gives your body is so good for your brain yeah back in that cold spell uh, we had a few weeks ago in january mm. uh, there's a lock nearby and it completely froze over it's like three inches of ice and you could walk on it without a single crack and we took our uh, sort of wood axe up and we chipped a hole and then like jumped to the ice and back out again it's good fun you're nuts, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're nuts. That, that was best idea that wasn't mine yeah there was a there was an interesting study actually on that note and I don't want anyone to quote me here again because I don't exactly know the numbers, so I'll give a general consensus. People that lived in Finland that go into mm. things like this, that, yeah. that kind of drill a hole in the ice and jump yeah. in the water, come out and go to the sauna, yeah. they were, uh, I'm just going to say at decreased risk because I don't want to give the stats, they were at decreased risk of heart attack, stroke, like 
mm. um, fit, say, uh, going into cardiac arrests, like everything came down and the scientists believe that when you jump into the water, it releases cold water. It releases a shock protein mm. that puts your body essentially in survival mode, right? Yeah. And apparently that is like so amazing for you. And then going from the cold water into the hot, mm -hmm. it, that also is beneficial, uh, which is really interesting. One thing I was going to ask you is how do you deal with like weather on the mountains, right? Because if you book a trip to the Alps, you don't really know the weather in advance. Mm -hmm. How would you? Yeah, I think for clients or for me or for anyone going climbing, it's super important to have a pretty flexible attitude. Yeah. Because you often book trips in like months in advance and you've got a week put aside and it's really easy to be like, right, this trip I'm going to do the Matterhorn, for example, or, or something. You get, you get really fixated on it. But um, you want to try and keep things open and say, I'm going to go climbing for a week in the Alps. And actually, even if you're flexible with location as well, which you can't really always do because you've got a hotel booked or something. Mm -hmm. But if you can be, then that opens up a lot more options and you're going to probably be a bit more successful because it might be that the Matterhorn isn't in condition because let's say the weather's bad up high, but you can go and do lots of climbing down low in the valley. Mm. Um, and so you get more out of the trip rather than trying to force something. That, that can't happen. That can't happen, yeah. And again, for clients, if, if they come to me really fixated on one thing, then I need to manage their expectations again and make sure that they know that there's a chance it might not happen, but there'll be a, a fun alternative. Might have to like drive for maybe a couple of hours to get to a different area or do something of a different elevation or altitude or like um, a different peak of a different nature, depending on what the problem is. Like if it's rockfall on a particular route or if it's, if it's bad weather and stuff. So Have you yeah. ever thought of doing the Matterhorn? Yeah, I've guided it a few times. You've done it? Yeah, 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 I've guided it. Really? Um, yeah, that's like a really common one because it's like proper chocolate box, iconic mountain, yeah. isn't it? So um, the classic route is called the Hornley Ridge and you go up and down the same way. But again, because it's so popular, there's a lot of people on it and you go up and down the same way, which means that when you get to about two thirds height, there's people starting to descend on top of you. And again, that's uh. where the people thing comes in. So uh, that's a little bit tricky, but it's, it's proper and amazing mountain. And uh, so, yeah, I've worked on that quite a lot. I yeah. went, I can't believe you've been up that. I went up, I took the easy way up and went in a helicopter <laughs> mm, wow. uh, with, with a brand. There wow, was a, that's what, really cool. Really cool watch brand. <clears throat> and they, I managed, they allowed me to like open the door and get some cool shots of the watches mm. outside. And, but I was looking at this fucking ridge and I was like, there's no, like there's, there's not, it, it's so pointy yeah. that there's like, it's like you're constantly just going upwards. There's no like flat green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? It's proper climbing. Yeah. Mm. And um, you got like the north face down one side and the east face on the other side and you're on this kind of ret between the two of them. So you've always got exposure on either side, whichever way you look. Is the wind bad then, I'm guessing? Um, it can be. Just uh, like the times when we did it, it wasn't too windy and you just got to check the forecast. But again, that's the kind of thing you'd have to say to clients, like the wind might be too bad to go up or it's mm. going to be bad but manageable or or whatever so yeah all that expectation management type stuff have you ever experienced any kind of like snow blindness in terms of not wearing sunglasses no, in your eyes i've not had that but a few friends have had it like momentarily for a little bit but got to remember your sunglasses yeah yeah, yeah. and you you bring your yeah i'm guessing you bring yeah probably yeah. carry a spare pair as well most of the time like on a yeah. glacier and stuff because you got all this reflection up which so you got it from above and from below so mm. Yeah, you need some pretty good sunglasses. Yeah, it's quite scary. I, I, yeah. You see people that have gone up Everest and are coming down and they just can't see. 
Yeah. Like, the snow. And, and you've got the altitude and stuff, so they just go yeah. mental. Yeah. yeah, yeah, legitimately. Like, they can't see. They've got the altitude sickness. Mm. They've got lack of oxygen. They've got the pressure of getting down on time. Like, it, the one thing you don't want to lose when you're up a mountain is your eyes. <laughs> like, yeah, you kind of need them. Yeah, yeah, they just pretty, walk pretty over handy. the edge. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of the mental aspects of these things, because you've got wind that's a play, weather that's a play, you know, snow blindness, lack of oxygen. Mm. How would you guide people in terms of managing their uh, kind of anxieties about being up that high, looking down, fear of heights, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I think that starts when you first meet a client and even when you first chat to them on the phone. Mm. So what they've done before, what's going to be appropriate for them and, and also what they want to take on. It might be that they're looking for like, a fun time in the mountains, in which case you find a peak that's going to be appropriate for them, or it might be that they want a big challenge and they're ready to take on something that is going to scare them a little bit. So there's that. And then once you're with them, you're like doing a lot of reassuring throughout the day and like making sure they're staying in like a positive headspace and stuff. As, someone, as soon as someone gets uh, like exhausted and intimidated, hmm. then they just move a lot worse. So so keeping them in a positive headspace just through like encouragement and making sure they know that you've got them and and keeping them informed as to where you're going and how it's all going to work and what's going on. But um, again, like with uh, in terms of people finding that sort of stuff easier in general, mm. um, you need, again, you need that sort of pyramid. So it's familiarity, I think. And so if you haven't done much, maybe a bit of indoor climbing, and then you go and climb the Matterhorn, it's going to feel really full on. Mm-hmm. Whereas if uh, if they've done lots of time on mountains, building the way up, then like I was saying earlier, by the time they get to the next hardest thing, they've spent so much time doing everything beneath that, that it doesn't feel like a big step up. And so they feel quite comfortable in that environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's important as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to message you after this with a, I'd love to film something like that up a, yeah. up a mountain, sunrise awesome, up yeah. a mountain. Yeah, yeah. We can do something like that. Because Andy is really keen for it and I was like, I know the guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. great. <laughs> That'd yeah, be awesome. a lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And do you, do, have you ever done any kind of video stuff before up, up in the mountains? Um, I've My friend is a photographer. He does like oh, climbing yeah. photography. So I've done quite a lot of like sort of photo shoot type stuff with him, which mm. like modeling for a brand or whatever. Mm. Um, um, so he climbs as well. He brings yeah, his camera. So yeah, Hamish is a good climber as well. And right. so, like, you'll just do a day basically climbing with him, but it'll be a bit more stop starty, and he will like tell you to stop for a second there and pose there while he gets a few photos. But he, he's a he's a really good climber, so he can move around you mm. while you're just out for a normal day and still get a lot of stuff without it really holding the day up. Yeah, which is quite oh, important. I will not be like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then on expeditions I've been on, a bit of a deal with, we've had with brands to get um, some kit and funding is we've like taken lots of footage from the trip mm. and then it's been edited by, by a guy who makes it into a little film. But that's all yeah. just like handheld footage that we've taken on like small cameras. Yeah. Yeah, so done bits of that as well. If any brands are listening, you need to sponsor this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the what are the goals for you in the future in terms of like what mountain peaks do you want to climb? What expeditions do you want to do? Yeah. Um I'm at the moment trying to like do a little bit less of the kind of um in terms of my personal climbing, less of the kind of really scary expedition type stuff. Mm. Because that's like uh sort of a numbers game. There's a lot of things out of your control and 
that type of climbing where you're doing new routes on big Himalayan peaks, there's just so many risks that you can't control. So you've got like hypothermia, frostbite, avalanches, seracs, which are like um, hanging glaciers can fall on you, rock fall, you just five days up a mountain that you can't really retreat from, all this sort of stuff. Mm. So it's pretty dangerous. But uh, I'd like to get more into something called big wall climbing where you're on like a rock face. So stuff like in Yosemite where... Um, it's beautiful there. It looks really oh, cool, yeah. Stunning. And, and so so then you can actually ab off because you're. it's a bit easier to ab off that kind of stuff. Like in Nepal, the last trip, we're on a 2,000 metre face. Mm. And when you abseil off, you leave gear behind. And we don't have enough gear that you could reach the bottom of a 2,000 metre face. Um, or you also, you're not going to get avalanches and seracs because you're on like a rock face rather than a big icy mountain. Mm. And, uh, and it's a bit lower altitude as well and all this kind of stuff. So I'd like to get more into that. And so this summer I'm going to go to Greenland for about five weeks. Mm. Um, Who are you and, going with? Have you got? Uh, yeah, I've got, we've got a team of four of us. So there's myself, yeah. a friend called Callum Johnson who lives in Inverness. Simon Smith who lives in Glasgow and a girl called Mishka who's Slovakian. Mm. Um, and there's a huge sea cliff, it's about a thousand metres, which uh, we'll have to kayak into uh, and then try and do this big multi-pitch rock climb, have to sleep on the wall and stuff. That's class. Um, so that'd be really cool, yeah. And that just feels quite a bit more relaxing than the previous couple of trips where uh, it's like a more controlled environment. Still, it'll still be really adventurous and really cool and we're going to try and do a new route as well. Um, so I'm trying to get into more of that because yeah. I've kind of done a lot of what I wanted to do on the kind of big Himalayan peaks in terms of my own personal climb but I'd like to keep doing work there so this October I'm going to do like a guided um, Himalayan trip with some clients where uh, we have a month and the first kind of uh, two weeks will acclimatize by doing a big trek mm. um, and uh, go over some passes spend time in like tea rooms and stuff uh, and we'll have like maybe five clients for the trek and then they'll all, or most of them will head back home at the end of the two weeks. And one guy is going to stay out and uh, we'll try and climb a six and a half thousand meter peak. <sighs> and, I'll, and I'll guide him up it. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so I'll still keep getting my sort of Himalayan fix through, yeah. through work. Yeah. Um, and then another fun trip I've got planned is uh, an Iceland trip. We will go for a week and then my girlfriend does a lot of sailing and she's got a friend who has a boat in Iceland who who they run like um, sort of sailing tours and I'm going to go with a bunch of clients and try and do some ski touring, like do day tours and come back to the boat and then move around to the next area, then do a day of skiing, get back to the boat. So you're using boat as a base camp mm. and having dinner on there and, and sleeping on there and stuff. Yeah. So... So that's my trips for this year. That's the plans. You're going to yeah. love Iceland. Yeah. I, Iceland. I've never been to Greenland, but Iceland, man. I, I actually went with my brother quite recently to see oh, cool. a volcano. Yeah, well. Mate, beautiful. Yeah. Especially for a photographer. Like, uh, that's a dream for me. You need to get a camera. Yeah. Oh, we actually just bought a good, or kind of good camera, I think. Mm. I don't, it's like kind of mid-range one, but, um, but Beth got it and she works away quite a lot on boats and stuff. So she's in Antarctica just now. Wow. Um, so... Yeah, she works on like uh, sort of tall ships that sail around the world and it'll take clients on a voyage and then they'll, uh, uh, she kind of picks where they land and take guests ashore and go for a walk with them and they'll they'll see penguins and she'll do yeah. lectures about the plants, animals and stuff. And she doesn't know a guy called uh, Alex, 
oh, his, his Instagram name is like ALX Visuals. Mm. And he's a photographer on one of those boats. And he's oh, in Antarctica really? right now. Maybe she would. Alex mm. Williams. I don't know. I, I wouldn't know him, but maybe she would. Yeah. yeah okay. He, I went to Iceland with him. Oh, uh, nice. One of the first, I remember telling you about that. One of the first trips I ever went on to like a, like an expedition for photography and paid work was mm. Iceland. And I went with two random guys that I'd never met. Yeah. Alex was one of them. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Really cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. You should ask her. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> he's a really cool guy. He used to, he said, he's talking to me about, he used to go to America and he used to hitchhike around America. Mm. And there was one time he was with, <laughs> with a pal and he uh, pulled this van over at the side of the road, went onto the van and the driver and his girlfriend were smoking meth while driving the van. Oh my goodness. And you can't, as a hitchhiker, you can't say anything. Like you need to be very, like you can't be rude mm. because you might piss this guy off and you don't know what he, who he yeah, is. Yeah, what's going to happen. So they get to like a fuel stop. The guy and the girl that are driving go into the toilet together. Mm. And he's like, God knows what they were doing, but they were doing something explicit. <laughs> and then he and his friend were just like, no, we can't do this. They just dipped, like, and yeah, capped to the yeah. side of the road. They were just like, no, we're getting out we'll of here. We're getting out of here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. Have you ever done any hitchhiking or anything like uh, that? Yeah, when I was younger, I used to do quite a bit. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have a car for the first couple of years I was claiming and stuff. And so I used to, yeah. like, get the train, but then it only goes so far. You have to, like, hitchhike the rest of the way and stuff. In Scotland, um, you were fine getting picked up in Scotland by... Yeah, I mean, that was maybe like 10 years ago or something. Yeah. And I think it's all got a bit harder since COVID because people don't want to share cars with each other. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, and I mean, the areas you're doing it are kind of like in mountainous areas. Mm -hmm. So it couldn't just go into Great Western Road and get a lift. But, <laughs> yeah. but like from the Ben Nevis car park, like yeah. I'd often also get a lift more often going from climbing back down again because mm. you'd like find other climbers as you're walking down and like just gotcha. asking if are you going to go past Glasgow and stuff like that yeah um but uh yeah I used to do quite a lot and you end up meeting all sorts of funny folk like mm. lorry drivers and uh and hearing different stories and stuff like that it's quite good it's more adventure isn't it and that's how you met your man wasn't it you, yeah so Paul, Paul who I did a lot of climbing with the last couple of years that was through hitchhiking where I'd been on <laughs> That's ben, wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, been, I've been just been climbing on Ben Evers by myself and walking down at the end of the day and he was in front of me with his mate and just asked, didn't know who they were at the time, but just asked them if they're going past Glasgow and they were. And then the whole lift down, um, he had to get all the way into southern England somewhere. So he was like whizzing down pretty quick, like overtaking all these cars. It's a pretty fun ride. <laughs> and he was telling me about all these stories of when he'd been hitchhiking when he was younger and like yeah. all his climbing stories and stuff. And then... Once he told me his name, I, I'd heard of who Paul was. And at the time, yeah. he was like my kind of climbing hero. So it was really cool to meet him. And then... Did you tell him or were you... No, well, I told, <laughs> I told, I told him I, I knew who he was. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't until... I didn't see him for like five years or something. And then we ended up on a similar kind of exchange trip where like six Polish guys came to Scotland and we took them Scottish winter climbing. Mm. And then we went to Poland and they took us Polish winter climbing. Mm. So it was quite cool because can't can't read polish guidebooks and don't know what conditions are doing and all that kind of stuff so pretty nice way of doing it and then after that me and paul started planning a trip together um but that was like 2020 when covid was right was yeah pretty mm. pretty annoying so we couldn't do a trip then we delayed it a year but covid was still like causing problems with travel and stuff uh, we'd have had to have like isolated for two weeks in a hotel and all that kind of thing so we cancelled mm. that and then um and then eventually managed to make our first trip work in spring 2022 when we climbed this Dugal Spire peak mm -hmm. and then did another trip in 2023 in the autumn so yeah it'd been pretty cool to be able to go claiming 
with your climbing heroes and kind of come yeah. full circle. That's like, that's a really nice thing with climbing. I, I also feel like though, when you're doing these low stimulus activities, for example, photography and videography is one of them because mm. you're not on your phone. You're just taking a photo of a landscape. Mm. And a lot of the time you can't use your phone because you can't have light pollution. Mm. All you really have to do is talk to each other. Mm. So like I went around Iceland for like seven days with uh, Alex and Matty. Yeah. I know that they're like best pals. I've not seen them in like a year, but because you're so close with each other, you're sharing a van with each other, you aren't really looking at your phone, there's not much stimulus going on. You have really in-depth conversations. Yeah, and I think when you have unlimited time as well. Yeah. So like on, like on a trip like that or on an expedition, you're there for a month and so you can let conversations come and go and, mm. and it's really natural. It's not like quick coffee break, tell you what I've been up to the last six weeks yeah. and go again. So uh, it is nice. Yeah, yeah, definitely different level of connection, isn't it? Yeah, and we went to, it, it kind of reminds me, we, went, we we hiked to the most remote pub in Scotland, the Old Forge. Mm. It's like a, fi- I think it's 52k, don't quote me, it's something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. it was uh, a beautiful hike, but no signal on your phone. And I, I went with my pal Andy. The, the conversations you have are just, they're just like a different layer. I feel like you have layers of conversations. Mm. You have the surface level shite, how Plank was your chat. day yeah. yeah you have then the secondary but it's when you get a little bit lower that's when the real connection starts coming mm. through and that's what these trips activate within people mm. because they don't have i'm going to take this photo for instagram and hopefully i get some likes for it it's not that it's yeah. more just getting to know each other yeah we also did a bit of work me and a few friends a couple of years ago working on like christmas tree harvesting mm. it's like kind of a classic job that outdoor people do because it fills in like a a gap in the calendar where there's often not much work in autumn because mm. uh, it's a bit too wet and cold but you end up just there like stacking christmas trees and it, you just work for like a month with no days off mm. um and it's always pretty brutal work you just do long hours dragging christmas trees about but it's always quite good fun because because you're in this uh sort of knackered state just dragging trees around you just end up having good conversations yeah. out of each other and it's like a bit of a laugh yeah it's a good community <laughs> yeah yeah I, th- I think that's so much of you're, what we're missing nowadays yeah you're just, bonded by a bit of hardship yeah and that and people are so like adverse to hardship hardship can be a good thing people yeah. people create hardship just because they have nothing else to do to experience that yeah today's world is like so geared around making life easier mm. that people who have the free time and the money to to do these things go looking for hardship which yeah, is kind yeah. of a it's like the opposite of what we were like years and years ago where we mm-hmm. would try and avoid that because we had too much of it and then mm-hmm. we kind of go looking for it as a stimulus don't we yeah yeah because yeah. it's what we're lacking i think nowadays yeah. like you see there's so many, it's really terrifying actually you see so many people that literally just don't leave their place like mm-hmm. they just don't leave they're just like oh no i'm quite happy just going into town and coming mm-hmm. back and, and not really seeing much and the, mm-hmm. it's, it's a shame because the, the their dopamine receptors are being hijacked by a device yeah yeah just overcomes them yeah yeah we have a closing tradition on the podcast what is the most valuable lesson that you've ever learned in climbing Mm. i think climbing teaches a lot of stuff actually Mm. maybe the biggest one is like sort of mind over matter and being able to um overcome sort of psychological situations that are a bit a bit scary by like turning your mind off and kind of staying calm so like if like scary things happen you can react to them pretty calmly Mm. because you've seen not necessarily stuff that's worse but just things that are like um quite dangerous you've been in a situation where you're standing on a ledge and and you've got no gear and it 
you've had to overcome that and so when something happens in real life it doesn't seem like that big a problem mm. that's really nice so it's the psychological aspect of it yeah you, the... you you can deal with kind of intense situations yeah 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 and do you find that it's easier to deal with intense situations in normal life because of that well i guess a certain level of intense situations so like things with element of risk but i would find intense situations like um public speaking or something mm. still pretty scary yeah yeah or cameras <laughs> yeah like, or just yeah. being on a podcast <laughs> yeah like today yeah. <laughs> no, you've done yeah. well yeah cool thanks a lot yeah it's been good no you've done well yeah. thank you very much man and uh how can people find you yeah so i've got um an instagram account and a website and a facebook page which is miller mountain guides mm. um and i I do guiding in Scotland and the Alps and I often run trips. So like this year is seeing Greenland, uh, Iceland, sorry, and Nepal. Yeah. So if you're interested in them, give me a shout. Yeah. And um, yeah, just uh, send me a message in, on Instagram or, or WhatsApp or something. Yeah. I'll yeah. be hitting you up. You know, Sounds I good. Be you up. Yeah, <laughs> great. Yeah, good. Well, thank yeah. you very much, man. I appreciate it. Cool. Yeah, thanks. It's been great. Good man. That was good.